Luke chapter 23, and we'll break in reading with verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39 through 41. As we're turning there, I want to express my sincere appreciation to each of you for the labor and the work that you've put forth in the last uh, couple of weeks for the Hispanic outreach. We are not finished yet. There's a whole uh, three cities full of Spanish people that we need to get the gospel to somehow. So let's continue praying and let's continue working. I know there were some bumps in the road with the by the beginning of bilingual service or understanding how to uh, how to do that here in this congregation. I appreciate your uh, patience with us. And uh, I appreciate the continuing work that is going on. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughter of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the buried, wounds that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. For if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, saying, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, this is the focus of our text lesson this morning, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Forgive my mistakes. That's Luke chapter 23, verse 26. For verse 43 we find here in this lesson that Jesus is on the cross he has been lifted up the sacrifice is being paid as we read and as we study this lesson it's it's uh it's in action and we're thankful for those actions that was done that day however I found out the last few years of my life that the world doesn't understand what really happened on the cross 
And I'm not talking about on Jesus' cross. It seems like we have a little bit of an understanding of that. I don't know if we have a full understanding of it even in the church today. But it seems like so many Christians today don't understand what happened with the thief. And there seems to be somewhat of a problem. A lot of people today question the necessity of water baptism for the remission of sins. A lot of these same people want to argue uh, what's called first principles. They want to disagree over first principles. And uh, they deny, as a result, many things that are taught in the New Testament. And that those things are form a list that is too long to even begin to try to enumerate this morning. But I want to focus on this one question. Is New Testament baptism really necessary? I mean, after all, the thief is reported as being die, as dying and uh, going to paradise in the New Testament. And we have no record of him being baptized. That's the problem. You know, the passage that we read today is the only passage that informs us about this conversation between this thief and Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and John don't seem to have any record of it. One of these two was a vulgar sinner, a criminal, the New King, New King James calls it. Other versions call them thieves. Um, keep in mind this morning as we go through the lesson that the purpose of these two men's deaths was vastly different. The reason that they were being killed in such a manner was vastly different. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, of course, was innocent, pure, free from sin. This criminal, on the other hand, a thief, a robber, he deserved to die. He had been judged, he had been tried, and he had been found guilty, and he had been condemned to die. But Jesus was dying because he was innocent. Jesus was the prophesied Lamb of God come to save the world. He was dying without spot or blemish in order to bring salvation to mankind. The remarkable thing, by the end of our story this morning, both men are headed for paradise. Even though both men are dying a horrible, terrible death, being crucified was not a joyride in any way. Both men are headed for paradise. One as the Lord, and the other as a saved or redeemed man. Now, keep in mind, too, that the idea of paradise, or the word paradise, is an old word. It, it comes to us from the Persian language, and it literally means enclosed park or enclosed garden, a place of rest, a place of reward after a long, stressful journey. For thus, for those of us as Christians this morning, we can certainly say that our life sometimes is a long and stressful journey, and we surely look forward to paradise. The reading this morning begins with the story of Simon the Cyrenian. The man who was carrying the cross of Jesus. And it wasn't unusual. In fact, historians tell us it was quite common for the Roman soldiers, at least in Judea, to conscript someone, a stranger, a stander by, to carry the cross for the condemned. Most of the time, the condemned person had been tortured in some way or was in no emotional state to be strong enough to carry the cross. And so someone had to carry it for him. So it wasn't unusual for them to conscript somebody 
And Simon the Cyrenian just happened to be there coming from the country. This man was made to carry the cross. Jesus makes a prophecy of the event that we see in this picture. This is some artist's uh, depiction of the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you've read excerpts or have read uh, Josephus's Wars of the Jews, you'll find some of the most graphic and stomach-turning uh, descriptions of the events of war that you'll ever want to read. You may not want to read them. They may give you nightmares. They were, it was horrible. It was terrible. And Jesus makes this prophecy to the women who were weeping because of his death, because of his condemnation. He says, don't cry for me, but cry for yourselves and cry for your children because of the judgment that is coming. This judgment came to fruition in AD 70 when Titus, the Roman general, destroyed the city of Jerusalem. The crimes that the Jews committed against their own during the long siege of that city are horrible and chilling to learn about. Then Jesus and the two criminals were carried to Calvary, to the hill Golgotha. And there, all three of them were crucified. Shortly after being nailed and into place and the cross dropped into the hole in the ground, Jesus gives the first of what, uh, what appears to be the first of the last seven sayings that he ever gave in his life. And it's remarkable. It's unique that here he is innocent and pure, unjustly condemned, having been tortured in the most cruel and abusive manner. The first things that Luke records to come out of Jesus' mouth was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It kind of made some of the grudges and things that we hold against each, each other sometimes seem silly, doesn't it? Let's be like the Master. Let's be like Jesus and say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know that they hurt me. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're saying. After all, some of the Jews didn't know, and Jesus, pure and innocent and holy, was still crucified, and he still prayed for their forgiveness. We learned, too, about the soldiers mocking him and gambling for his robes. The one who won the game would win the seamless robe for his few earthly possessions. We see a sign hung over the cross that it was intended to ridicule him. And I think it was in Matthew's account that Matthew tells us that the Jews went to Pilate and said, no, take it down and make it say, he said he is king of the Jews, but Pilate refused to change what he had written. So the setting is described for our lesson this morning. The background, if you will, is set for us today. The creator of the universe, the Lord of lords, and the king of kings is dying. A sad day, a bloody day, a dark day. To add to the torment that he endured, those crucified with him, those who were dying at the same time, began to mock him and ridicule him. Instead of commiserating, at first they both were. But then it seems like one of these two had a change of heart. We have no idea what caused him to change his mind. We have, maybe he knew Jesus before. Maybe he had heard Jesus preaching before. Maybe he had seen Jesus' miracles before, and he knew that he was the Son of God. We don't know that. But one of those were so crude and cruel that he kept, making, kept on mocking an innocent man as he was dying. And the other one, 
changed his mind. He rebuked the one that was mocking Jesus and said, don't you know, we deserve to die. But he's a just man, and he's dying unjustly. Have mercy on him. Then he turns to Jesus, recognizing Jesus for who he is as the Lord of the universe, as the Lord of paradise. He says, Lord, when you will you take me with you? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gives that next statement that has been so troublesome across the years. Verse 43, he says, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In our day and time, many people, as far as I know, hundreds of thousands, and some, several, even within the Lord's church today, scratch their heads and say, but wait a minute, how can he go to paradise? He was not baptized in water for the remission of sins. Well, I want to give you some arguments for that to strengthen your faith along that line. First thing I want to point out to you very clearly and definitely is that the thief was definitely saved. Jesus gave him the promise, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus knew that all three of them were dying. The Lord also knew that in three days he was going to rise again. But Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me preparing for judgment to go into your eternal reward. And we know that Jesus, while he was on earth, had power to forgive sins. And this is a remarkable and wonderful thing that we see that Jesus has done. I want you to think of this, this particular moment in Jesus' life as a wealthy uh, parent speaking to a child and saying, you know, son, the days are coming when I'm going to die and you're going to inherit everything. But for now, because it's still mine, I'm going to give you a little portion of it. It was Jesus' power to get to forgive sins. It was Jesus' prerogative to forgive sins based on the conditions that he set forth at that time. Faith in him was absolutely necessary, of course. We see Jesus having forgiven sins in at least two other incidents than this one on the cross. He exercised this power at least two other times. In Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26, it's the, the Luke reports for us. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the housetop that they might let him let down with his let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst of the house before Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now we like to focus on the idea of some of people being so desperate to get to Jesus that they cut a hole in the roof and let their friend down in front of him. And that's a beautiful concept. We wish it was that way. We like to focus sometimes on the idea that Jesus was able to speak words to a man who had been paralyzed from his birth and this man be able to get up and go out from there 
carrying his bed with him. But I think what the amazing thing is that the Son of God was able to speak to him because of his faith and say, man, your sins are forgiven you. This is before Jesus was killed. This is before the Lord's death. Look again with me in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Again, we won't read the entire section there. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she saw that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed him them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So Jesus is looking at the woman, but speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven you. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, Jesus had not died. And we can see that there's an allegory between what this woman was doing and the anointing that Jesus would receive while he was in the tomb or being prepared for the tomb after he died. We can see examples of uh, hospitality and how we ought to react to people in the name of the Lord and be hospitable to people. But the takeaway because of her faith, Jesus said, Woman, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had not died. His blood had not yet been shed for the forgiveness of sins. But they were saved, just like the thief was. Their sins were forgiven, just like the thieves were. You know, we're a lot like that thief sometimes, aren't we? I think in my own mind sometimes that everybody wants to be saved like the thief on the cross. Wait till just a few minutes before they die. Confess the Lord Jesus as, as the Son of God and die and go to paradise. Live their life and do their thing and whatever they want to do, wherever they want to go, whatever they want to say, live a life of wickedness and immorality just like he did. Crowd of thief runs with are usually lazy and perverse. 
at least from my understanding of it. They take that which belongs to another person and confiscate it for themselves, for their own gain or their own survival. This man still died and went to paradise. He had no responsibility, no job. There's no record of anybody standing around this crucifixion scene mourning him. There was no burden or cost or sacrifice for living a godly life. There was no practice of self-discipline. I think a lot of us sometimes want to live and be saved just like the thief was. Carefree, loose, no one to answer to, just a boat adrift on life's sea with no certain plans or self-control. Much like it was in the days of the judges for the people of Israel. We find in Judges 17, verse 26. I'm sorry, Judges 17, verse 6. That there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But that's not what the scripture teaches, is it? Even in the Old Testament, there was expectations for those who would follow God. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6, the prophet exhorts the people, saying, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek the Lord while he may be found, indicating that there may be a time when he can't be found. Call upon him when he is, while he is near, indicating that there may be a time when he is not close. The scripture proclaims, rather proudly and boastfully that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save. But this verse seems to indicate that there may be a time when he cannot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, For he says in an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now it's the day of salvation. How many times have I stood here and exhorted us, we do not have tomorrow promised. We don't even have this afternoon or this evening. We have here and now. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 2, and chapter 16, verse 25. This is such an important thought that it's echoed twice in, Holy, in the Holy Writ. There's a way that seems right unto a man but the end of that way is death. Folks, doing our own thing, having our own way, is not the way of salvation. Let me be quite frank with you. We cannot be saved like the thief. Part of the reason is Jesus is not here physically to forgive us of our sins. And Jesus has bound himself to a new law. We cannot be saved like the thief. But in a sense of the word, every one of us must be saved just like him. Hear me out. Let's read these two verses again. But the other rebuking, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? 
and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief had lived a wicked, immoral, ungodly, self-serving life. And now he's dying. And he realizes the presence, who, who's he, whose presence he's dying in. And he decides then and there that he's going to stop mocking God. He realized just how mortal and temporary this life is and how awful eternity is without God. He declares Jesus as having done nothing wrong. I don't know any better way. Than, to than what he said to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is Lord and is pure. He acknowledges Jesus' purity and he acknowledges Jesus as Lord. He submits himself at a very late hour, admittedly, to the Lord. And that is what we must all do today. We don't submit ourselves to what the church says or submit ourselves to what the preacher says. We don't submit ourselves to what some creed or some dogma says, but to what the Lord says and to who he is. Too many think, though, that today that's all that's necessary. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's what the thief did, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead yet, but the thief recognized Jesus as Lord. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Too many people stop right there. They fail to realize, or they refuse to realize, or they've been taught and can't realize being deceived there's more to salvation than that. Too many preachers, so-called today, teach that that is the entirety of all that has to be done. And they fail to take into account that the thief, who they often use as an example of this doctrine, was not under the law that we are under today. You know, the grace of God is one of the most misunderstood characteristics of God. In days long gone, God gave messages to those who followed him. When they heard that message and they followed that message or obeyed that message, thinking of Abraham especially, they were saved because they were participating in God's grace. Listen carefully. That's what grace is. The message of God delivered faithfully to and fully to humanity. That message reveals sin. That message also reveals how to get rid of sin. We are truly saved by faith through grace. I want you to pay careful attention here. This is one of the major cardinal scriptures that people use to base the idea on their idea on of being saved by faith or saved by grace alone. Paul says 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It does not say by grace alone. It does not say by faith alone. The thief was saved by grace through faith. He demonstrated his faith with his repentance and acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. Jesus, full of grace, forgave him. And some versions calling him son and promising him paradise. So what's the problem? Many today try to use this as an argument against the necessity of baptism. They say that, you know, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. and He was promised paradise. So, parad so baptism isn't necessary. When they say this, they're missing some very important elements. We're thankful each time that someone obeys from the heart that form of doctrine and is added to the church. Here's some, some considerations regarding the thief's baptism, our salvation. Number one, the thief was saved before baptism was commanded. I don't know how we can miss this. If we understand chronology and what chronology or timeline means, this is so important. Jesus, who according to Matthew 28, verse 18, has all authority and can change the law, can institute his own law, he had not commanded baptism. The very earliest record of a command for baptism is found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Likewise, Matthew 5, Mark 16, verse 15 and 16. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who, will not, who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus had already been crucified, spent three days in the grave, and had resurrected from the grave before these commands were issued. I want you to know carefully, the baptism that is commanded is commanded throughout the New Testament, and it is a baptism into Jesus' death. This is so important. It is a baptism into Jesus' death. Read with me in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 6. Do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. How can we be baptized in let me start that over. How could the thief be baptized into Jesus' death if Jesus was not dead yet? It doesn't work. It wouldn't work. He could not be baptized into a likeness 
of Jesus' death. That's what Romans 6, verse 3 through 6 is talking about. Because Jesus had not died. The one thing that makes the concept of baptism work, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection had not yet taken place. Number two, the thief on the cross was never subject to New Testament baptism. We are. He was not. Baptism was commanded after Jesus died, as we've just finished discussing. And the thief died too, nearly at the same time. We don't know exactly how long, perhaps minutes had passed, but if you recall the story, the Romans were sent to break their legs so that they would die quicker and suffocate, but when they came to Jesus, they found that he had already died. So it wasn't terribly long, and they, were died, they died in nearly the same time frame. Listen, Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, the list can go on and on. They were not baptized because they lived before the death of Jesus. The thief on the cross was part of that group. I'm not saying that he was a patriarch or a great uh, hero of the faith like they were. But he was saved just like they were before Jesus' death. They lived under a different system to remove sins. They were never commanded to be baptized. And what about the baptism of John? The baptism that's recorded in the Gospels. John's baptism was a preparation for Jesus. Preparation for the kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, we read that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This baptism was designed to be replaced by baptism into Jesus. Look into Acts chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. I'm sorry, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, we live after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We live after the point that Jesus gave the command to be baptized for the remission of sins. After John's baptism was replaced, therefore we are subject to the law of the Lord. We <coughs> must be baptized into Jesus' death, into Jesus' baptism. <coughs> Number three. The thief on the cross was saved before the new covenant began. <coughs> the thief on the cross was saved before the new covenant began. There's at least two covenants in the scriptures. There's many, but two major covenants in the scripture. A covenant is an agreement between God and man. There's the law of Moses, which is a covenant that Paul talks about in depth in Romans and in Galatians. There's the law of Moses. It was imperfect. It had been taken away. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 2 and 3 tells us. 
The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Moses and the people had just come out of Egypt. Moses and the people had just landed in the land of Canaan. And Joshua, or Moses, was promising them, reminding them of what God had done. This covenant governed all Israelites, even Moses, from Moses until Jesus. It governed all Israelites from Moses until Jesus. That includes John. That includes the thief on the cross. It even includes Jesus while he was alive on this earth. That covenant did not require baptism. It required a lot of things. The offering of blood, the blood of bulls and goats, tithes and remembering holy days, and the list can go on. But it did not require baptism. That covenant ended when Jesus died on the cross. And a new covenant was put in place. Let's listen to what the Apostle Paul says as he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Again, the Apostle Paul says in the letter to the Colossian church, verse, chapter 2, verse 14, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. That covenant was obliterated. It doesn't exist anymore. And so there is a new covenant that is now in place because Jesus died and brought it forth. He ratified it. Jesus, the testator. This is the wealthy parent who's still alive, who gave a portion to his children before he died. That's how Jesus could save the woman. That's how Jesus could save the thief before he died. But now, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 and 7, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Next chapter, Hebrews 9, verse 15 through 17. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it is no power at all. The son of the wealthy individual the children of the wealthy individual 
cannot claim mom and dad's possessions, even though it's written in their will, until mom and dad are dead. That's the way it works. That's the way it works in heaven. Until Jesus died, mankind could not claim salvation except through the law of Moses. Because Jesus died, he ratified, he brought into place a new and a better covenant that's built on better promises that is more sure that is better than the old. And now we live under this covenant. This is us. This is me and you. Not the thief on the cross. I don't want to be saved like the thief on the cross. I want to be saved according to the new covenant. As such, we must submit to this new covenant to be saved from our sins. If you remember the commission. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, he was the testator that died to bring about the New Testament, the New Covenant. Jesus had authority on earth to establish this covenant, this time frame, this law that we are under today. As such, he commands baptism. I ask you this morning, why would we want to obey a covenant that's already been fulfilled? Why would we want to obey and live under a law that the requirements have been met to a T? Every one of them, an old law. The covenant that did not require baptism is obsolete. It required the blood of bulls and goats. It required a man to make intercession, a faulty man, to make intercession for other faulty men. Many other things it required. That's why the Apostle Paul called it a law of bondage. That's why he called it, he said it was a faulty law but it's out of the way it's gone it's removed it's done a new covenant hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 a new covenant he has made the first obsolete one more thing many people often assume that the thief was never baptized this may be faulty reasons reasoning we should never assume things from Scripture. If you remember in our reading this morning, we read about Simon the Cyrenian who carried the cross for the Lord. Well, many people assume that's because Jesus was staggering and stumbling, falling under the load of the cross, but the Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture nowhere says that he stumbled. It just says that Simon was forced to carry it for him. We should never assume that the thief was never baptized. It doesn't say that he was never baptized. I've been guilty of these very things, and I may yet find other ways that I'm guilty of these types of things. We need to be careful. Folks, it was very possible that he was baptized under John's baptism. Listen again, Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. It's a lot of people on a large area. The thief may have been one of those people. We don't know. It doesn't say. But we need to be careful in saying that he was never baptized. John's baptism was unique. 
It was addressed only to Jews. <coughs> its special purpose was for people to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. John's <coughs> baptism was not for everyone. It was not for the Gentiles. It was not for those outside of Israel, for the Romans. We must not confuse John's baptism with the baptism of Jesus Christ, meaning the one that he commanded. John's baptism did not take effect until after the cross of Christ. And finally, the goal of New Testament baptism is radically different than the goal of keeping the law of Moses. Keeping the law of Moses meant that one was added to the nation of Israel. That was God's people at that time. Being baptized in water for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ means we're not added to a nation, to a secular nation like Israel. We're added to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the church of the living God. They had to do certain things to stay in that national kingdom, which was designed to pass away. New Testament baptism, though, puts us into the kingdom of Christ. When Jesus adds us to his church, we have been added to a kingdom, according to Old Testament prophecy, as well as New Testament promise, which will never be destroyed, which will not pass away. My question to you this morning, have you been baptized in water? for the remission of sins. If not, why not? <coughs> why are you waiting? Won't you come today? The Song of Invitation is number 596 in our red books. If you have not yet been baptized in water for the remission of sins, will you come believing that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God? making confession of that faith and repenting of your sins will help you be baptized in water within the hour. Come as we stand and sing.